entrance fees. Seems anything worth seeing and everything worth visiting costs something. So an annual pass to our nation's national parks, $80. Now, it's not that bad a deal if you think about it. A whole family, four a year, I think 62 parks, $80. It's a pretty good deal. How about a single-day ticket to Disney World? About $130. Now, personally, I think they should have to pay you that to go, but that's just me. Don't judge me. A single-day lift ticket to Vail. $209 last winter. Now, that's, I think that's getting pretty steep. But what about, what about a dinner, an indoor meal at the prestigious French Laundry in Napa Valley, California? Well, for that, you're looking at a whopping $850 per person. Though, California Governor Gavin Newsom found recently, that the political costs are considerably higher than that? How about a three-day paddock ticket to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix? Well, that will run you $7,200 for that three-day ticket. What about the cost to join the Ocean Reef Club? This is the exclusive club, one of them at least, in, uh, in Key Largo, Florida. Well, the entrance fee there, just to get in, not to buy a house, not to have a slip and a boat and the rest, just, just to get in, $200,000. But how about a ticket to outer space? A ticket to outer space. You know, in the past, such costs have ranged between $20 and $50 million. And yes, the world's first space tourist was an American 20 years ago, Dennis Tito, and he paid over $20 million for the right to be a space tourist. But I've been reading, apparently space tourism is like the new business of 2021. And Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson's company, for $250,000, you can apparently get a seat into this sort of, sort of suborbit around the Earth where you can go into outer space. But friends, how about a ticket not just you know, up into the heavens, but how about a ticket to heaven itself? What does that cost? The entrance fee to heaven. How do we measure that? Can we pay that? Well, friends, these are the things we're going to be thinking about as we turn back this morning in our study uh, in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in chapters 8 through 10 uh, for the last number of weeks. Let me invite you to to turn there now. We're going to be in in chapter uh, 10, verses 13 to 31. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to open there with me now, Mark 10, 13 to 31. If you don't, don't fret. We actually have the sermon text printed there in the worship guides for you, and you you can look at it. I think it's on page 9. Now, if you are visiting with us sort of in this Thanksgiving weekend, let me just say it's great to have you here. What a privilege it is to study God's word with you. You know, there's no better thing that we can do to gather and to think about God's word, to think together about it, to be challenged by it in order to better know the God of this word. So grateful you're able to be here. And if you're visiting, you know, we are in this, this section of Mark 8 to 10 where Jesus has just concluded his public ministry, really three years of ministry in the North Galilee, and now he's making his way south and he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And the disciples fully expect as they go to Jerusalem, they're expecting a wonderful coronation service. That's what they're expecting. Jesus is, after all, the Messiah. Peter just confessed him and so, and Jesus didn't deny that. He didn't reject it. He accepted it. So they're expecting to go for a wonderful coronation ceremony. But what the disciples don't understand is that before that crown that Jesus would don, he would have to bear a cross. That's why three times in chapters 8 to 10, Jesus is going to predict his death. He's going to predict his own resurrection as well. But the disciples, as we've seen, they don't have ears to hear. They're not ready for this message of Jesus's. So as they march, Jesus is seeking to teach his own disciples what his Messiahship means for their discipleship. The problem is so far they've just about failed every single test. So Jesus has promised that the kingdom would come. But the the burning question is, are the disciples going to be ready? 
Friend, are you ready for that kingdom to come? Well, let's read Mark 10, 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, referring to Jesus, that Jesus might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Well, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first now at first glance it appears what we have here are two distinct and unrelated scenes right you've got Jesus welcoming the little children and you got Jesus warning the rich man but notice there's actually a common thread that weaves these two stories together and it's this teaching about the kingdom of God so look down with me there, right, in verse 14. Kingdom, Jesus says, to such, right, such children as these, belongs the kingdom of God. And then in verse 15, next verse, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And of course, if we jump forward into the next scene, after the written verse is just turned from Jesus, And after he's walked away, Jesus responds in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Then again in verse 24, he repeats it to his disciples, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Right, five different times you come across that expression, the kingdom of God. So central is it to this text, right? This question of how one enters, how one receives, how one belongs to the kingdom of God. And this is actually directly related to the, to the rich man's question of, of what he says, what's required to, verse 17, to inherit eternal life, which Jesus comes back to in verse 30 when he promises eternal life to all who follow him in the age to come. Which is really just another way of asking, as Peter and really the disciples do, right, who can be saved? Who can be saved, verse 26? Right, salvation, eternal life, 
the kingdom of God, right? Those are the burning questions of these two passages. But I pray they're not just the burning questions of of these passages here, but I, I pray they're the burning questions of all of you. I pray these are the kinds of questions that dominate your own thinking and your own hearts, right? Recognize that there can be no weightier questions than the questions brought up here this morning in Mark 10. No more important question can be asked, right? It's, it's more important than any discussion around a COVID vaccine, more important than any election result, right? More important than stock market records this week or the vanishing, disappearing supply of Christmas trees, I mean, have any of you tried to buy a Christmas tree this weekend? If you haven't, I'm really sorry. It's going to be hard, or they're going to be really small. We went to about four places yesterday. All that to say, those aren't the most burning and important questions, but the questions here, now they are. In the first scene, we're going to be given a positive example of what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. And in the second scene, we're going to see a negative example And I think the basic message, the basic message of the text is this. Entering the kingdom requires nothing, but may cost you everything. Entering the kingdom requires nothing, but may cost you everything. And that sentence, that summary sentence is really just going to, we're going to break it apart. It's going to serve as our our two-part outline. So first, entering the kingdom requires nothing. Entering the kingdom requires nothing. I think that's the lesson we see with the children here in verses 13 to 16. And the scene opens with all this happy commotion as, as parents are bringing their children to Jesus. So maybe this is like the mall at Christmas time when we used to be able to go into malls and when malls weren't going bankrupt, but just... Go with the picture for a moment, right? Children eagerly lining up, right, to see Santa Claus, and they want to go, and and they want to sit on his lap, right? Only this time in this scene, right, children are bringing their parents to to Jesus, and the parents aren't merely pretending to be happy and enjoying the time. Like, they might want to jump on Jesus' lap, too. This is Jesus, the amazing Jesus. They want to hear from him as much as they want their children to be blessed by him. And yet it's at this point, right, that the mall cops show up. They start blowing their whistles, right? They break up the party. They send crying children away and cross parents too. It's a, it's a pretty ugly, messy scene. We read in verse 13, right? The disciples rebuked them. Them likely being the parents. The children were likely very young. Luke's account tells us they're quite young. Now, why would the disciples rebuke the parents? Well, presumably because they thought this was beneath Jesus, Jesus didn't need to be occupied with with children at this point in his ministry. They probably thought they were protecting Jesus. They were guarding his time. This isn't an important campaign stop on the way to Jerusalem. Children aren't the priority. The mission was to get Jesus to Jerusalem and to get him on a throne. Children can't exactly contribute to that cause. Children aren't going to exactly give to it. They're not going to march with it. They're not going to help overthrow the Romans. Right? So Jesus, this is not worth your time. And remember in the ancient world, right, they thought about children quite differently than we do. We thought about this a little bit back in Mark 9, 36 to 37. Right? But we tend to see tenderness toward children as a virtue. Right? Relief organizations use pictures of struggling children in order to garner sympathy, support, Politicians, right, secure votes by staging nice, sweet photo ops with the children. But in the ancient world, again, think back to Mark 9, 36 and 37, children, they weren't valued as sweet and innocent and pure, but as those who had no rights, no standing, children had nothing to contribute. Societies often treated them as slaves or as worse than slaves. Yet we read Jesus didn't secretly thank the disciples for rescuing from all these children. But no, we read he was indignant with them. Verse 14, right? Their actions aroused Jesus' own anger. Let them come, he insists sharply, right? Don't hinder them, 
Jesus says. Interesting, that word hinder right there, it's the same word used back in 938 and 39, right? That word stop. When the disciples, remember, tried to stop the, the follower of Jesus from exercising spirits in Jesus' name, the disciples are like, hey, he's not one of us. They try to stop him. Jesus says, don't stop them, don't hinder him. Same word. So I think once again, subtly being pictured here for us is, is how the disciples are once again, they're in opposition to Jesus' own work. They don't realize it, but they are. They're, they're actually obstacles to God's work, right? Their spiritual arteries still remain dangerously clogged at this point in Jesus' ministry. They think by doing this, they're helping the cause of the kingdom as Jesus is actually saying, no, you're hindering it right here. You're hindering it by this action. Well, how? Well, Jesus says, because to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Children, all children automatically go to heaven? Well, Jesus explains what he means in verse 15, right? That psalm opening, truly I say to you, which is just Jesus' way before he says something of putting an exclamation point on it, right? Hey, listen up. This is going to be on the final. This is really important. So grab your pens, right? Take notes. This is, this is critical. And he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So notice again, the question here is how the kingdom of God can be received. Received, right? It's not the kingdom that we build. It's not the kingdom we create. It's not what we accomplish by partnering with God and good works. No, it's always used, again, with more passive verbs. We thought about this with the mission of the church. Like inherit or receive, verbs like that. So again, because it's God's kingdom, only God can grant access to it. It's from his hands that we receive it, not our hands that we achieve it. The kingdom Jesus is helping us see right even here. The kingdom is a gift, a gift he must give. And it must be received, Jesus says, like a child. So here we see children are but an object lesson. The children here are actually meant to point us to a, to a deeper spiritual truth. And let me just note, for those of you who know something about church history and other denominations, that, that many who believe in infant baptism have actually used this text as one of the, their great justifications for, for infant baptism. And I know I'm in a Baptist church, and you all know me, and, but I'm not going to go on a rant on that. Other than to say lots of people, John Calvin, B.B. Warfield, people I respect to hold to that position, but I just want to note that nothing in the context here is addressing baptism, Jesus isn't talking about it. He's not discussing here who should and should not get baptized. He's not talking about when they should get baptized. Let the little children come to me is not a proof text for inviting children, babies, young children, not inviting them into the baptistry any more than it should be a proof text for inviting them up to the pulpit to preach. It's not what Jesus is addressing. Jesus is talking not so much about age but about the attitude of one's heart. Like a child, he says. Now, some look at the story, and again, they assume Jesus, oh yeah, he's highlighting children because we all know children, they're, they're innocent and they're humble and they're pure and they're eager, right? That's, that's what Jesus wants of us. He wants to see those virtues in us. But again, the key thing, remember, about children in the ancient world was that they had no standing. They had no status. What's being highlighted is not virtues they have. What's being highlighted is actually what they lack. To receive the kingdom like a child is to receive it with no credits. To receive it with no clout, no claims upon it. To receive it as a child is to receive it in the recognition that we've done nothing to commend it. It's to come to Jesus with a, with a kind of helpless dependence for every single child, right? This was true in Jesus' day as much as it is in our own day. Every child is absolutely, completely, completely, totally, objectively, or existentially helpless. Every child is. Jesus says that's their advantage. That's actually their advantage. 
They know they have nothing. And so they come empty-handed. And they come empty-handed to the one who has everything. And that's what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Friend, I wonder, is that how you come to God this morning? Do you come to God with a kind of helpless dependence upon him? Do you come empty-handed? Or do you come to God with sort of hands outstretched with your little offerings to him? God, you know, you should welcome me because of sort of your little offering, whatever it is, fill in the blank. You know, I've been a good person, or largely a good person. I've been faithful in my marriage. I mean, most of the time. I've been a good parent. Well, except for those times I really blew up pretty badly. I've been a good church member. Well, except for those years I kind of went astray for a while and the church had to track me down. Friends, whatever it may be, we think often God is going to be impressed by what we bring to him, by what we offer to him. You know, it's kind of like when my wife and I, when our kids were small, uh, when cooking dinner, mostly me kind of participating, I'm not great there, but, but we're trying. Uh, Aaron's doing a better job. But at any rate, we send the kids. Some of the kids are outside, some are down in the basement. And what do we do? We're cooking dinner, and they go cook dinner. And then near the end, you know, they come back to us, and they're proud. And, you know, my son's, like, got dirt in his hands, and it's got gravel and grass. And he's like, here's a hamburger. I'm like, yeah, yeah, imagine that. Or, you know, they, the girls come up from downstairs. They've got their little sort of play kitchen, and, and they've got this plate, and there's this hot dog, plastic hot dog that the dog has chewed half off of, and it's suspiciously sort of sliding around because one of them had a runny nose, right? And they hand it. You're like, oh, that's wonderful. And you quickly put it aside. Like, there's no way I'll touch that, right? But friend, that's exactly how it is for so many of us when we come to God. Yeah, God, aren't you impressed? Aren't you encouraged by what I've brought? But friends, he's not impressed until you see your own spiritual poverty Right, you'll have no need for Jesus. So long as you think you have something to offer to God, Jesus has nothing to offer to you. Like the old, old line from that hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. And this is hard, right, because as sort of self-respecting individuals, we don't want to come effectively groveling to God, but in our spiritual poverty, that's the only posture we could possibly have. Jesus is saying, unless you come empty-handed, right, no credit, no clout, no claims, nothing to commend you, unless you come like that, you are not coming to receive the kingdom of God. That expression, shall not enter it, verse 15, is the strongest possible like negation you can have in Greek. Something like, there is no way in the world ever that you will inherit it. That's the effect of what that verse has to say. The first step toward receiving the kingdom of God is recognizing, it's understanding, it requires nothing of you, nothing you inherently possess nothing you have though it requires nothing Jesus is going to go on to say though it may cost you everything it may cost you everything and that brings us into the to the second point as we move on to verses 17 through 31 point two entering the kingdom may cost you everything it may cost you everything so if the first story is sort of the call of the kingdom here's really the the cost of it here and we have this counterexample to the helpless little children. What do we have? We have a deeply moral, respectable, reputable, wealthy man. He comes on the scene. Matthew identifies him as young. And if you know the story in Luke's gospel, Luke identifies him as a ruler. So we sometimes know the story as the sort of rich, young ruler who comes to Jesus. Notice Mark, though, just Mark calls him a man. Makes the, in that sense, makes the story a bit more universally applicable. Right? We actually don't learn he's rich until toward the end, of the end of the scene. But just to picture it now, you've got this rich young ruler, and he rushes to Jesus. 
throws himself down. And notice the disciples, well, they're not rebuking this guy. He's just the kind of man they're thinking Jesus should be bothered with. Right? Just the kind of man he should make time for. Right? Wouldn't this guy make a perfect addition to the disciples? Right? This guy would give the disciples, give Jesus some clout, some prestige, just the kind of momentum maybe they could use as they come to Jerusalem, one of these guys on the team. No doubt this man would have some connections. They get to Jerusalem. Maybe he could make a few calls, open some doors, help, help things happen, introductions and the rest. They're probably thinking, Jesus, don't drive this guy away. Don't drive him away. We could, we could really use him. Right? Isn't this the kind of guy that we'd seek to recruit to join our church? Respectable, as we're going to see. Rich, no doubt. We might even be tempted to soft pedal a few Christian truths, a few of the hard teachings that we believe as a church, so as to not drive a, a guy of of this kind of standing away, but not Jesus, right? Notice Jesus loves him. We're going to see he loves him too much to give this man a, a half gospel, a gospel that doesn't save. No, Jesus, he won't pursue here any, any slick and easy, easy methods of evangelism, doesn't do that. Right? The man, though, what does he do? He rushes forward, he respectfully kneels before Jesus, and he asks in verse 17, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Friend, what a question is that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nobody's asked this question of Jesus yet. Not like this. Not even the disciples have asked a question this pointed and this important. This is the question, friends, that we all need answered, right? This is the million-dollar question. This is the question every religion, in one way or another, seeks to answer, right? In Catholicism, what's the answer? It's do penance. It's go to Mass. It's cooperate with God in doing good works, maybe even paying up indulgences to, to shorten your time in purgatory. Or Islam, every Muslim who wants to escape the judgment of Allah Enter into, you know, John, enter into paradise. What are they supposed to do? They, they must fulfill the five works, or rather the five pillars of, of the faith, right? Almsgiving and prayers and, and uh, fasting, pilgrimage, all the rest, right? That's what they must do to inherit it. Even Buddhism, right, to achieve nirvana. You achieve it through the accumulation of, of good karma, right, good works. In that sense, self-effort. That's one of the keys to obtaining bliss in Buddhism, I mean, even Mormonism, which holds itself out as Christian, but is not Christian, right? It's all about faith in Christ, ostensibly, plus baptism, plus obedience to the church, plus good works, plus keeping the commands of God. You know, actually, Brigham Young famously said, you know, some teach that a man guilty of atrocious and murderous acts may savingly repent on the scaffold, and upon his execution will hear the expression, bless God, he has gone to heaven to be crowned in glory through all redeeming merits of Christ the Lord, to that, Brigham Young says, nonsense. Such a character will never see heaven. Well, so much for the thief on the cross. So much for scandalous grace. Right? One has to earn their way to heaven. You don't get a free ticket. Not the free merits of Christ. Not like that. But I could just keep going. All major religions teach that heaven is won by us. It's earned by us. It's achieved by us. It's what we must do, right? Through blood, sweat, and tears like a climber, right? Desperately seeking the top of the mountain. We climb our way to God, bruised and bloodied fingertips. Yes, but that's what we're called to do. Hands calloused, right? Blistering from this life of, of punishing good works. That's the message. When it comes to heaven, we gotta earn our ticket. But Jesus has just finished teaching He's just finished teaching that the kingdom of God isn't achieved by us. No, it's got to be actually accomplished for us, wholly apart from us. That's part of what he's going to help us see. Notice there's an inherent tension. Did you feel it in the man's question? He's asking what to do to inherit something. What to do to inherit something. 
But recognize the very nature of an inheritance is there is nothing you can do for it. It comes to you as a gift. It comes to you, in fact, as a gift through another. This man, like so many in the world today, understood that behavior was the ultimate requirement of religion. And so Jesus, for a little while, is going to play the man's game. He's going to say, okay, all right. And he's going to recite, really, the second table of the Ten Commandments. Right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc. To which, what does the man say? Very joyfully, he's like, hey, I've done it all. I've been faithful since my youth. That's me. The man, in that sense, is kind of bringing his moral report card to Jesus. He's saying, hey, take a look. Right? I got all A's. Now, we might think that's self-righteous of the man, and perhaps there is some self-righteousness in his own heart. But, you know, the Judaism of Jesus' day assumed that one had the ability to keep all the moral requirements of the law, right? From A to Z, right, the rabbis would say one could keep it. Paul, even in Philippians 3, 6, will talk about his own sort of legalistic righteousness. He would talk about that as being faultless, about being blameless. That's how he understood the law. And so we read verse 21, Jesus looking at him. And that word for looking is, is a compound. It's actually looking intently. It's examining. He's, he's staring at the man almost as if he's sort of boring a hole right into his soul. And he's looking at him. And we read that Jesus loved him. Which is striking because this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is explicitly said to have loved somebody. And we'll read a lot more in John. But in Mark, this is it. This is the only time. Jesus is not simply here a religious teacher who's going to deliver the cold, hard theological truths. No, he's being presented as a deeply loving Savior. He loves this man. He sees some things in this man, and he loves this man. Perhaps we're told that Jesus loved the man because God himself is love. And part of the connection that we're to make is how Jesus himself is being connected to God's own character. And lovingly, Jesus looks at the man and says, you lack one thing. Which, if you think about it, is rather ironic. For children in the former story who possess nothing... Well, they're not told they lack anything. And yet this guy who's got everything is actually told he's lacking something. Well, what is it? Perhaps this man's hearing just one thing. Wow, one thing. Man, that's better than I thought. One thing, I can do one thing. I've got one thing. Jesus, whatever it is, give it to me. I've been really good at all this stuff. I can get this one. This one thing, I got it. I got it nailed. Or maybe he's looking at Jesus' eyes and he already knows he's not going to like what's coming. I don't know. But in a single sentence, Jesus exposes him. And he calls him to go. Which in of itself, perhaps not too hard. Sell all you have. Oh, wait. Okay. Well, yeah, that's the F-150. Right? Got to get rid of the flat screens, the Sonos, the, the grandmother's estate. All, this, like, all that's got to go? All that's got to go. Okay, do I give that to the church, the synagogue? No, nope, give that to the poor. I mean, those that didn't work for it, those that didn't earn it, I, I got to give it to them. Yeah, you give it to them. And once you've done that, Jesus says, you can come and follow me. Well, what Jesus is doing right there is he's actually calling the man to repentance. The man may not see it, may not realize it, but the man's understanding of the law was merely outward and formal. It was not inward and spiritual. And Jesus is helping him see, yeah, I know the second table of the law, right? I know you think you've kept all those commands. And in some sense, right, I understand what you mean. But how about that first command? The very first one. To love the Lord your God. To have no other gods before me. Like, how about those commands right there? Have you kept that, that command? Have you, have you followed those? And the obvious answer is going to be no. Right? Wealth was this man's God. So Jesus is calling him, as he did back with the disciples in 942 to 47. He's calling him, in effect, like this is his teaching for cut off the foot. 
or the hand, gouge out the eye. Like whatever you have to do to rid yourself of that sin that would ruin you, Jesus is saying rid yourself of it. He's calling the man to radical discipleship because there's not another kind of discipleship. Friends, notice this is not here Christianity 201. Now we come to this often as more wealthy people and as a wealthy church, and we like to think like this is for that extra level of spirituality. But this is not Christianity 201. This is not about entering into a deeper spiritual life. It's not about receiving Jesus as Lord after you've already received him as Savior. It's not about sort of now we're going to really place Jesus on the throne of our hearts and on the throne of our lives. That's not it. This is Christianity 101. This is about how one inherits eternal life, how one becomes part of the kingdom of God, how one is saved. It's about what it means to be a disciple. And here is what he's helping the man see. It's that Jesus will demand all of you or he'll have none of you. There's no middle ground. There's really no other way. When it comes to our lives, there is no corner of our lives that can remain untouched by Jesus. So when Jesus comes into our life, so to speak, right, when we, when we profess faith in him, then he comes to sort of remodel the home, we don't get to keep one room to ourselves. We all love to do that. We want to be able to do that. We all have those rooms like, Jesus, you can remodel everything. I don't really care that much about that stuff. But this room over here, that door's locked. I got the key. That's, that's buried deep in the pocket. Jesus says, no, it's not how this works. That key, that's my key. You give that key to me. You have no rooms. Every room is mine. And everything I have is yours. Your sexuality, right? Your money, your career, your success, your family. He says all of it, you have to turn over to him. To follow him is to give it all over to him. And right there we see, right, that's too much for the man. His face falls. That word disheartened in verse 22, that's an exceptionally descriptive word. It's a really rare word. It's used in Matthew, I think 16, of, of a storm, heavy, dark storm clouds that are, that are gathering so in the same way, we can almost picture spiritually this man's face becoming progressively dark as his own heart and his own idolatry is being exposed. For he loves riches more than he loves God. He trusts in his riches more than he will trust in God. In the words of one, you know, the young man came, and he came with the right question to the right man, and received the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. Dante called this the great refusal. And you know what's ironic? What's ironic is that it was actually his enviable assets that were his greatest liability. Here was a man who knew, who knew the perceived price of everything but apparently the value of nothing, you know, that proverbial expression. He knew the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Friend, I wonder if that might possibly describe you this morning. On this weekend, I trust not by accident, right? Black Friday weekend, heading into Cyber Monday. Many of us have been thinking, planning, strategizing. We know the price of lots of things. But do we know the value of anything lasting? Are our hearts trusting in riches? Are they trusting in wealth? Are they trusting in those things to make us happy, those things to deliver for us? You know, if you're in the room, maybe you're, you're younger. Maybe you're a young adult. Maybe you're a college student, right? Maybe you're in your 20s. I don't know. But either way, is there, is there a possibility that, that you're thinking, you know, one day, yeah, I, I want to be, be religious and all. I, I mean, I want to be a Christian, but I really like to be rich too. Really like to be wealthy. You would think and assume that wealth is often the answer to, to many of life's problems. And one, someone once told me that if all of your problems can be solved by money, you don't have any real problems. You'll probably push that too far, but there's a lot of truth in that statement. Are you trusting in such things to make you happy? Recognize in the Bible, wealth is often not an asset, but in the Bible, wealth is often a liability. It's a liability for the way it steals one's heart from God. 
Jesus is often saying that wealth is in fact a handicap in one's own life. So we think of the rich as overprivileged, and we even have class warfare, like we've got to take from them, right? They're overprivileged. Jesus is actually saying, no, they're in fact underprivileged. You might need to pity them. You might need to be really praying for them, because their heart and souls, they become hardened to the gospel. They're in great danger. You know, there's the story told of, of, a, of a rich older man who stood up in church, you know, sort of giving season, and he stands up and he says, listen, you know, one day I was out there in the pew too. I was young, just got my first job, didn't have a big paycheck, but got that first paycheck, and I'm sitting there in the pew, and the offering is going around, and I hear this voice saying, oh, just give it all to me. Just give it all to me. And the man's like, oh, no, I don't really want to do that. No, first page, I don't want to do that. But this voice persisted, and so finally he relented. He's like, okay, I'll give it all to God. So he gives it all to God. And then he goes on to say, and you know what? I gave it all to God, and God was faithful. He rewarded me. And ever since then, God has blessed my life. He's blessed my business. Now I'm, I'm wealthy, and I'm a successful man. And this is what you need to do, too. And he sits down to lots of affirming faces, And then an old lady from behind him leans forward. And as he's sitting there, somewhat in his self-righteousness, she just leans and whispers and she says, I dare you to do it again. And he knows in that moment, he probably couldn't do it again. Wealth has his heart. It's got his heart. How hard it is, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's going to say in verse 23. He's going to say it again in verse 24. And then the coup de grace, right? That iconic line, verse 25. It's easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Right? You've got the largest animal in Israel, a camel, the smallest opening, eye of a needle. And so what do we have? This delightfully absurd and impossible image a camel trying to crouch down, right? Thrust himself, humps and lumps and everything, right? Thrust himself through, the, through a little needle hole. Of course he can't do it. It's absurd. Now some have actually tried to soften Jesus' words because this is hard stuff. Like actually that word for, for camel is often, it, it's very close to the word rope. It was probably just a copyist error. It's really, it's really a rope he was talking about. Not like a rope would fit in any better. Others would say actually there was a gate in Jerusalem and it was called the, the needle's eye. And camels would have to enter into Jerusalem if they were to come through this gate by kneeling down. In the same way, a rich man, if he's going to enter into the kingdom of God, is going to have to kneel humbly with his riches. And that would be convenient, except for the fact that no gate ever existed. Someone in the 11th century wrote it up. Doesn't seem there was any historical evidence for it. Now, I think to be clear, Jesus is not commanding asceticism. So he was just in Peter's house. And he didn't say, hey, Peter, why haven't you given your house up? From what we gather, Peter and the family stilled their boats. They stilled their tools right, for fishing. He's not commanding absolute asceticism. Nor is he commanding poverty because poverty doesn't all of a sudden magically deliver one from the love of money. You can be poor and still be at fault in this text. right? Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, also a godly man. The same with Lydia and many of the women who helped and funded Jesus' ministry and later the apostles' ministry. But if... At this point, you're tempted to breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, I'm okay. That's why this text is for you, right? You're the ones who need to hear. We need to hear these words. Because part of what Jesus is pushing against, all these notions of easy believism, right? You can have God, but still kind of have your gods too. You know, like we've been watching the latest series of The Crown, like Prince Charles, tragically, right? I've got Diana, right? I've got Diana, but I'm going to keep Camilla on the side. God won't share the worship in the hearts of his people, right? It is all of you for him or none of you for him. Not because God is insecure, but because he's God, because he's worth it and worthy of it. And at this, the disciples, what happens? At this point, they're distraught. Not only has Jesus just chased away one that could actually be a great contributor toward their cause, but if this righteous, if this respectable, if this wretched man, if he can't enter the kingdom of God, then who can be saved? 
That's the question, verse 26. And now finally Jesus has brought them to the point where they're too asking the right question. Who can be saved? And it's only at this point, in their futility, recognizing their utter inability, that they're finally able to experience God's grace. All of us treat inability like a deficiency. Inabilities are deficiencies. But Jesus says, such spiritual inability is actually the opportunity for us to embrace if we're to actually experience true saving grace. Our inability, that's not a deficiency, that is our opportunity to experience and understand the saving grace of God. And if God has brought you to that place of utter spiritual inability, that is a good place to be. That's the best place you can be. That's where the gospel meets you in every place you need it to. It's why he turns them to God. Right right there, turns them to God. All things are possible. It's exactly what he said back in chapter 9, remember, with the the man, with the demon-possessed son. All things are possible with God. Which is why, friend, if you're here this morning and you're tired of that religious treadmill, right? You get on the treadmill and you run to do your things, but it seems you can never run fast enough because the harder you try, the more you stumble, right? The, yeah, I, I got that nine-minute mile and then it goes to eight and it seems like the speed keeps increasing and you get spit out the back every time. Yeah, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to run yourself ragged. Jesus saying, get off the treadmill. That's not how you get to heaven, It's not how you get there. Eternal life is not something that can be earned. It is inherited. There is an entrance fee, yes, and it is perfection, and it is too high for you. It is unattainable for you, which is why it has to be given to you because Jesus has already won it for you. Friend, that's what the gospel is all about. Jesus gave the wealth of heaven to take on, as John opened, I think, you know, in those, in those welcome announcements, take on the poverty of human flesh. Jesus lived a life in perfect obedience to God. He fulfilled the law, every one of its commands, and did so perfectly for us. And then died on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners in our place. And then rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death so that all who truly repent of their sin, who turn from their sin, who don't walk away from Jesus, but are like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but with your help, I'm going to try. For those who turn and repent and go to him in those empty, helpless, childlike arms of faith, Jesus says they can be saved. God can do that work. Friend, if you come to Jesus desperate, insufficient like that, It's the only way to come to him. The only way to come to him. At one level, right, it requires nothing of you. Because Jesus, he fulfilled it all for you. But at another level, it demands everything from you. It does. You may have to leave, as Jesus says, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, lands, Jesus says in verse 29. Right? Everything you value and everything you hold dear. Jesus says you got to be willing to leave it all. Don't, don't hold tightly to that. you got to be willing to let that go. Though interesting, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say leave spouses. I don't know if you caught that. For of course, what has he just taught as we saw last week? He's taught on the indissolubility of marriage. The permanence of marriage. No, you don't leave spouses. And is it worth it? Absolutely, Jesus says. For those who do will receive a hundredfold in this life, and in the age to come, he says, eternal life. Now, right there, I know many mock such notions of a kind of pie-in-the-sky religion when you die. Many mock that. But it also kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, pie now. Right? This is what you get in this life? It all comes. Well, I mean... Kind of yes, but also no. No in the sense that all of this comes, notice he says, with persecutions, verse 30. This comes with persecutions, verse 30. So in that sense, faith is not some insurance policy against hardship, against adversity. It's not that. And no in the sense, this isn't the prosperity gospel. Jesus isn't saying this is your ticket to the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But yes in the sense that he is saying in a real way that they should gain New homes, new family, 
But by that, he's not promising vacation homes on the Florida coast. He's referring to what Christians should know and experience by coming into the family of faith. He's speaking of the kind of community where those who don't have family, because their family has rejected them for believing in Jesus, well, now they're welcomed into a new family with brothers and sisters and, and many, many more. Fathers and mothers. They're the ones who are welcomed when they don't have a Thanksgiving table. Lord willing, they're welcomed at the Thanksgiving table of many here. Where those who don't have homes or lands, well, they have a place to live within the community of faith. Where those who, you know, maybe they just need something as simple as a pan. Or they need a ladder. Or they need an air compressor, as I did this last week. right? Whatever it is, they know, like, I got a whole family. I don't need to buy that stuff. I got all that stuff at my disposal. Because we share it. Kind of Acts 2, we have it with one another. Right? Those who have cars that have broken down will be given loaners. Or maybe even just given one outright. Where those with punishing medical bills are, are given aid and support to meet those bills. Where those who can't afford a vacation are maybe are given a vacation. Or they're given a place where they can go on vacation. Friend, that's what genuine church communities do. That's what missionaries, if you read missionary biographies, they, they bear testimony to this, but it shouldn't just be out there on the field. This should be our testimony with one another. We should not look at this verse and think, yeah, where's my extra house? But what have I inherited with all of these brothers and sisters, with all that we can do together? And friends, all those examples I just gave a moment ago, right? Ladders, air compressors, meals, cars, medical support, vacations, places to stay. I didn't just make those up. Those are actual examples of things that I've seen happen in and among and through you. So just a word of encouragement to you who are members of UBC. That's awesome to see when the body comes together and blesses one another like that, fulfills the promises of Jesus right here, receiving hundredfold more. Friend, it's part of what my family has even experienced being part of this. You are blessing your kindness to us. And that's what true church community is meant to look like. That's what's meant to mark us and to define us, to know that, that we have a home in this life even as we await our heavenly home and we know the blessings. Yeah, we don't own it, but that's okay because we can't take it with us. But we get to experience it together. Friends, a new heaven awaits. And yet Jesus is helping us see it's not gonna be achieved by effort. It must be inherited as a gift. And the entrance fee, yeah, he's already paid it. It requires nothing, though it may cost you everything. It demands you drop everything, leave everything for him. Friend, have you done that? Have you done that? If not, what's stopping you this morning from doing just that? Let's pray together. Oh God, we give you praise and we give you thanks that in Jesus you speak plainly to us. Yes, it, they are hard words, but they're words we need to hear. Lord, we need our hearts exposed where we have tried to close off rooms of our lives, lock the door, hide the key. Oh God, we pray that we would truly repent and we would follow you as the one true God in Jesus Christ all the days of our life, considering heaven and the surpassing worth of what's to come is worthy of any costs in this life, however small they may be. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.